Programming Throwdown, episode 167, Desktop User Interfaces. Take it away, Patrick. As a true nerd figured out a way to make even the things I never thought I would do nerdy. Uh, so <laughs> no, I guess I should have, this sounds like a brag, like true nerd. I don't know what that means. I'm not gatekeeping. Everyone can be a nerd. <laughs> um, if you're listening to the show, you're a nerd. Um, yeah, that's the, right. You're all honorary the, nerds, even if you just started. I did some amount of physical fitness stuff, uh, you know, in high school, beyond some sports teams. That, and then it, it sort of just languished when I became an adult. Uh, I know a lot of people like play pickup basketball and stuff, which is great. What um, sport I did really you play? I played basketball, but I, I was never very good at it, to be honest. Yeah, same here. I played basketball. And despite being very tall, I was also absolutely terrible at basketball. <laughs> I, it's the... It was that the 100,000 hour, 10,000 hour thing? I just wasn't willing to put in the, like I would go to practices, but I never like played on the weekends or it wasn't, it wasn't a passion. Yeah. I mean, my thing was, uh, I was, and I realize this now watching my kids play sports. Like I just don't want to touch anybody else, physically touch anybody <laughs> else. And so I would see like, how could I play, you know, this sport, whether it's basketball or soccer or whatever, in a way where like, I don't have to even inadvertently like touch anybody ever and uh and of course like, you just can't you can't really play most sports that way i ended up finding uh, my niche in volleyball <laughs> but every other oh, sport, okay all you right pretty much can't work that way so i've uh this all started I, I guess for a variety of reasons a family of member member of mine uh started jogging running um a, a while ago like years and years ago and i was like man okay that's good um, so I was visiting with them recently and then was like kind of feeling bad. They were getting up to go for their morning run. And I was like, enjoy, <laughs> I'm going to just sit here <laughs> on my phone. Um, and then, then I was, uh, you know, I have, you know, I'll, you get these smart watches. So I have, you know, I have an Apple yep. watch or whatever. Um, but I, I think other ones do the same thing. And so it gives you this estimate of your body's like aerobic capacity, so-called VO2 max. I don't know that much about it. Do you actually get it measured? You go to a, you know gym and they give you like a face mask that you have to wear and it measures like oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. I don't know something like wow. that while running on a treadmill and it has to do with your body's like ability to process and you know handle high amounts of physical activity or whatever so so they estimate it on a variety of other factors that are correlated with it and they give you the score and it says your cardio fitness is below average now <laughs> I'm not like the healthiest person I'm not gonna lie but like in general uh you know I, I I, I like to consider myself healthy-ish. I mean, it um, hurts so, when you see that. You know, it, yes. it, it hurts. So, so I have a scale that tells me my body fat is not what it should be, and a watch that tells me my cardio fit. So, all this piled up to say, okay, I'm going to do something about this. I'm I'm getting up in age. Uh, you know, it's not going to get any better, right? So, it's like I'm going to start running. But of course, it's not. You can't just run. Like, oh, I have tennis shoes. I'm going to no, 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 no. Like that was not how I approached it. So I got to like figure out I'm going to do a program. Oh, there's an app. Oh, there's an app is going to tell me exactly what I have to run each day uh, and like go up by a set amount, you know, each week. So this amount of run mm -hmm. followed by walk, run, walk. And then each week it's going to get better. And then you'll be able to run a 5K, which is sort of like the shortest distance that has common races. You can run like a mile or a hundred yard dash or whatever. But like as an adult, I don't know how you go find a place where you run a hundred yard dash or hundred meter dash. Um, yeah. But 5Ks are pretty common. You can just Google it. There's probably one in your city uh, every week, certain times of the year, probably. Um, so, so I was going to like, okay, I'm going to run a 5K. Then I realized, oh, my watch can give me all these running metrics. Uh, and then not only like per run can you find stuff like how many times your feet are moving per minute. And there's an optimal range that you should be in for that. And cues to make sure your like, body is biomechanically efficient and studies to back that up. But then aggregating them across days. 
How, what is your training load like? Are you getting enough rest? What is the math behind it? Like, oh, there's, you know, this, this set of people has a study. This other set of people has a study. They have different ways of calculating. You can bounce back and forth. And then you get into the, the traditional tech stuff. Everyone tries to lock your data up. So then you have all these ways of like exporting it to like more open source platforms or cross-platform oh. stuff or just more free platforms. And there's like, oh, are you in the Apple ecosystem or the Garmin ecosystem or the Polar ecosystem or the Koros ecosystem? And there's like all this lock-in and it's just endlessly fascinating that people have. So I was talking to this family member of mine and sort of saying, oh, you know, I'm doing this. So I, I run on my Apple Watch, but I instantly grab all the data and push it up to this other platform. Uh, it's called Runalyze. Runalyze just runs this like free agnostic input source, you know, running all these algorithms on whatever it comes from. Um, maybe they'll eventually charge. They're not really open source, but it, it's sort of at least free for now. And so I just grab all my data and put it up there. And he's like, yeah, but I've been using, and, and he's using Garmin or whatever. I've been using Garmin for like 11 years. So all my data is there. Oh. And I'm just like locked in because of all this history of run. So, um, I, you know, so I've been running it's still pretty so what's early. The, yeah. What's the effect? Like, did you, uh, like, is, is, is the data helping you along? So it's keeping me engaged. I will say like, the, it's like the base level metrics that are, are improving. So like resting heart rate is trending down. That's good. This VO2 max estimated is ticking up. I'm still below average. Uh, but I've been <laughs> doing it sort of eight weeks. And, uh, you know, it's just, I guess, so the thing that is encouraging, well, discouraging, but encouraging is uh, some of them will give you like how ready you are to run a marathon. And then it tells me 3%. And so I'm like, okay, well, clearly, clearly there's, you know, headroom here. Uh, And so I I find it very encouraging to be able to like, look at a a sort of description of all the stuff. People say that you got to write it down, you know, like write down your, you know, metrics tracking, because you're more likely to stick with it. Uh, Writing it down sounds very tedious. So instead, you just shove it all up in the cloud, and you get a bunch of graphs that show you just how slow you actually are. Uh, And then you, you know, so this, uh, once you sort of get into it, you start seeing times of like professional elite racers, like people who do it as a career in the Olympics or whatever. And you see their time compared to your time. And the interesting thing is like, if you were to play basketball and say like, you know, a professional basketball player was going to play basketball, you're not really playing the same game, like the strategies, right. dunking, the kinds of three pointers they do. Like you're, it's clear you're not doing the same thing. Running is not like that. When, when, you know, Iliad Kipchoge runs a marathon at world record pace and you run a marathon at abysmal pace, you roughly look like you're doing the same thing. Like the body mechanics look similar. Like if you don't have a context, the speed could even look the same. It's not. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's sort of, you're just, they're doing the same thing as you, just like faster. And so there's almost this like motivation. You don't have to learn a new skill. You just have to do more of it. Like, oh, I just have to get a little faster, a little faster. And of course, there's some power law distribution, right? Like eventually moving down a minute is incredibly hard versus for me, moving down a minute in pace is is trivial, but you know, it doesn't, you get diminishing returns there, but there's this, the pros and me do the same thing. We just go and run. And so it's sort of been interesting and motivating and the metrics seeing, you know, this direct one-to-one comparison. I run a mile in X minutes. They run a mile in Y minutes versus you can't compare yourself to, you know, a football player or soccer player or a basketball player. Like they do what and you do why in a number-to-number comparison. I, I don't know of a number to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, 
Yeah, because there's basically an arms race. You know, like there's a whole bunch of strategies that might work at the high school level, but then by college, everyone's learned those strategies. You know, in, in basketball or something, and so you have to you have to do something different. Um, but uh, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, the most I've ever done in that is uh, I do have a, a Fitbit that keeps track of my heart rate, and I try to keep my heart rate in a certain zone. So yeah. like if it's yeah. not in that zone, then I'll slow down or even walk and I'll just try and keep it at that number. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just scratching the surface. Yeah, it's interesting if you really dive in and then we'll leave this alone, but the, even the various, why does that zone training work? What are the ways of picking the range? How do you tell? And then there's, you know, the sort of how you feel way of tracking it. There's like a mathematical formula to track it. And then there's the actual like getting at, I go run on a treadmill and prick my finger and measure like how much of various hormones and lactate are in my blood. And it tells you like, you know, your various thresholds. So it's, it's kind of an interesting range of, you know, philosophies for ultimately what just amounts to like going and running, which you've been doing for however old you are minus, you know, three or four years, I guess. We've all been running for years and years and years. Uh, but to kind of try to hone it is a, is a kind of another endeavor. Yeah. I had a buddy who would run on the treadmill and he was extremely athletic and he, he'd run on a treadmill at high velocity and, um, um, and then also play final fantasy seven and try to like optimize it at the same time, like while he's running. And I remember one time thinking, yeah, this is probably what like a human, like, like, this is probably what the matrix looks like, <laughs> you know, just, like your, your brain power and your physical power are just being kind of like maximally exerted, uh, um, on this station. All right. Well, with that, we'll go to, uh, news of the show. News of the show. So, uh, yeah, both of my news are foul and, you know, obviously as folks know, we don't swear on the show. We've never sworn on the show. Uh, at least I don't think we've literally never sworn on a show, but you know, sometimes guests do, we bleep it out. Um, but I just happened to just coincidentally, I have two somewhat foul news articles. I'll do my first one. Um, now I'll give a bit of backstory to this. So, um, yeah, I'm always trying to create different experiences, games and toys and stuff like that. And so I, I wanted to make, and it sounds kind of silly, but, but hear me out. I wanted to make a, uh, engineering manager simulator or maybe just more generic like a manager simulator and so you would mediate conflicts with people and you'd have to kind of place bets on different areas and and just the parts that are kind of strategically fun about being a manager i wanted to just distill that down and make manager simulator and so i I wanted chat gbt to be you know kind of a big part of this where you know there would be discussions among different chat gbt agents who have been given different different goals and you know you would you would you know see all this information and all sort of like inter intra office diplomacy and ChatGPT is extremely strict on negativity so you know if you i even tried something like write a, a mean letter to you know this person about some project that they messed up and ChatGPT is like i'm sorry you know i can't write you know, mean things, or I will not disparage anyone. And it was just like, I, I literally couldn't finagle, you know, even like a, you know, polite, but, you know, direct, uh, negative message. 
Um, and, and I don't know, like, uh, you know, maybe it's like a situation that's in flux, but when I went to chat GBT a few weeks ago, or maybe a week ago, like I just literally couldn't get it to do it. As and moms, so, three laws of robotics here. So can't, can't yeah, harm, that's right. human. And so when, when I'm, and this is, uh, this speaks a little bit to my psyche. When someone tells me or some system tells me I can't do something, I immediately think there's a business opportunity here. Like, like if you can't do something, then, uh, maybe there's some value there. And the only way you're going to extract it is by somehow subverting the system. And, and so that might take an idea from being like, uh, uh, the pet rock idea where literally anyone could do it. to an idea where like maybe only you could do it. And so there's a chance to be like a real innovator. So I started poking around and I found something called the unholy LLM on Hugging Face. And so this is a Llama 2 model. So Llama 2 is a large language model that comes from Facebook. So it started out as that, but then it's been fine-tuned. It's been trained on, um, and I actually don't even know what it's been trained on, but whatever it is, it's it's completely uncensored. I don't think it's been trained on like purposely the worst parts of the internet or anything. Um, and the reason I, I don't think that is because, you know, I started off, you know, just saying like, uh, you know, tell me a joke about about this this company or tell me a joke about Elon Musk or, you know, tell me 10 books I should read. And I got all like very normal answers. Um, but if you tell it to write a nasty letter, it will write a nasty letter and it will drop F-bombs. <laughs> and it will do everything. And it is actually hilarious. Um, <laughs> I've been showing off to uh, um, we had some family friends in town. Uh, and I was showing them, um, you know, and then we were all getting a really big kick out of it. Um, and I guess like kind of two takeaways, one, um, you know, yeah, it is actually really hard to say kind of anything negative on any of these or, you know, generative AI things. Uh, but two, um, you can almost trivially download these. I was running it on my laptop CPU. Uh, the laptop has, it's a MacBook but it's too old. And so I couldn't use the metal accelerator, uh, whatever that is. So, so it's literally running on, on the CPU and it was still able to generate like several tokens per second. And so you ask a question and you get an answer in 10, 15 seconds. Um, um, and this is with a 13 billion parameter model. So um, mm -hmm. overall, I was just incredibly impressed with how far the open source has gotten um, there's a hugging face has a leaderboard, which is how I found this unholy model. I basically, I was going down the leaderboard. It's like, you know, chat GBT, Meta's llama. I know both of those are extremely strict. Um, you know, and then there was a few others I think you have to pay for, or I just didn't know much about. And then this one came up and I was like, all right, let's do it. Um, so, so yeah, it was a really fun experience. Uh, you know, again, you know, you shouldn't spend a whole bunch of time doing rude things, but, but, uh, um, but now if I want to have this sort of intra office conflict among these AI agents, uh, I could do it without, uh, um, any, any worry of, of, you know, the system, like just like the game just becoming unplayable. Yeah, I, I guess like the, the, like one level more morality problem is it, you could end up with an AI or, or LLM that like 
goes from just like, you know, sort of hilariously in context, dropping F-bombs to something that's like actually traumatic sounding or describing a really bad scene or something that like uncensored, it, it, it's not like a binary thing. Like you're either censored or uncensored. Right. I, mean, I guess it can be, but there's like, it's like a gradient and you could go really, really far down. Like somehow it actually learned something about you and then it's saying stuff about you personally. And like, it sort of jumps the boundary, breaks the third wall or whatever. And like, you yep. run into people just really, really turned off or, or upset or even like, you know, uh, somewhat damaged or, you know, really you know, messed up by, by this thing. So uh, I, I hear you, but like, I also could see why, you know, businesses don't want, that was, that's always what happens, you know, these get unleashed and then someone convinces it to say something really bad or, you know, something that's socially considered a very bad faux pas to talk about. And, uh, you know, it's in the, write an article. Oh, this is, this is the worst thing ever, but. Yeah. I mean, there was one that I skipped over, which was, I can't remember the name. I was trying to look it up just now, but it, it said it was literally trained on this, uh, forum called 4chan. Oh no, um, no, no. And no, I was no. like, okay, I know enough. I know what that word means that I'm going to skip this one. <laughs> and so, so yeah, I think you're right. I think that, that there's a spectrum here. There's, you know. I literally wanted to write a professional letter where one employee felt like another one should get fired in my game. Uh, and yeah. I couldn't do that. And then there's, yeah. you know, as you said, there's, there's many, many layers to that onion. And, and I, yeah, I would also recommend people just, you know, for your own identity, <laughs> just, yeah, don't, don't, don't go down that rabbit hole. But, but, you know, if you want something, if you, if you, even for my, you know, if folks remember, I released this uh, generative fiction.com. I released this, uh, this text adventure with uh, with ChatGPT, where you know, as you meet different NPCs, you ask them questions, and ChatGPT generates answers. I was I was just looking at some of the stats that I was collecting on that, and a significant percentage of people's questions were blocked, and you know, no, almost none of those questions were foul. Like somebody asked uh, one of these in-game characters, um, you know, like. Like, uh, have you ever been on a cruise ship that sank? So the premise of the story is you're on a cruise ship and, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's a, there's like a, a murder on the cruise ship and it's a murder mystery. Um, and so someone asked you, have you ever been on a cruise ship that sank to one of the NPCs and ChatGPT blocked that question. Um, so, so, uh, so it is very strict. Um, but, uh, but yeah, also don't, don't go down that rabbit hole too far. Don't look into the black mirror or whatever. Look no, into the abyss. Yeah, I think I said break the third wall, but I was thinking break the fourth wall. Uh, I don't know. I don't understand the indexing <laughs> scheme. Zero versus one indexing, we'll call it. Uh, you don't no, know sorry. what the LLM thought about that, that metaphor. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I don't. I don't really don't. Uh, all right. So my next article is from a blog um, uh, from a from a person who was uh, dealing with an incident. Uh, this is on the blameless bog. I've never read it before. We'll have a link in the show notes. Um, but this concept was pretty interesting. Um, the story itself was, I feel, I feel like, you know, full of a few mistakes in dealing with this incident, but this uh, reverse red herring was kind of interesting. So most folks know what a red herring is. Uh, and if you're, you know, debugging something or a problem goes and someone just gets really fixated on, you know, this, this thing that just feels very, very obvious, um, but it turns out to be a, a red herring. It's just, you, you know, it's, it's not worth considering. Uh, you should just move on and, and you're really wasting your time. Um, and so the reverse red herring is opposite. Something that that actually probably should be standing out, uh, but you kind of skip it or ignore it. Or for some reason, you discount it and you you don't spend enough time, you know, looking at it. 
you you proceed through your processing of information, your incidents, you know, trying to do an analysis of what's going on. And then someone has an idea, wait a minute, what about that thing we stopped considering, you know, and all of a sudden it just bubbles right back up to the top again. And so I thought that was a, a sort of interesting phenomenon uh, to, to name something reverse red herring, uh, sort of an interesting, yeah, cool. I, I guess, almost a double negative. It just means interesting, uh, but it's been discounted for some reason. Uh, yeah, so. I, the one I could think of that came up recently was um, we had some code where there had accidentally been a new line inserted, but it didn't. It, the code still ran. And so it's just like the second part of that line was if you just look at it in isolation, it basically does nothing. It's kind of like saying, you know, like like zero or something. Right. So it's like you could put a zero semicolon in C++. It just won't do anything. Right. I think so. But um, um, but yeah, so it's one of those. But actually ended up being a really serious issue because that 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 second part of that first line was meant to do something really important. Yeah, yeah. And it would be in this case, in this case, just to finish off the story, I guess they had rolled out a new binary to their uh, an endpoint. And the sort of circumstances were that the effect was it looked like everybody else was uh, had gotten a sort of like pad configuration was DDoSing their service. Um, and in actuality, it was that their new deployment had a bug in it that was giving a bad response, which was and then the clients were said, if you get a bad response, like basically turn around and ask again because, you know, something as bad is happening. So they were DDoSing themselves. And originally they were like, oh, no, it can't be this like new deployment. Like it, this is not how it would manifest itself. Uh, in actuality, it was. And it feels like, you know, a, a bad deployment, like you just rolled something out and then everything bad happens. That feels like it should probably be the first thing you consider. But they tossed it out as a red herring because they thought they had done it due diligence. but. Uh, they hadn't. And it could, it could have been coincidental. <laughs> In this case, it wasn't. Very cool. Um, my second article is, and again, I'm, it has a cuss word in it, so I'm going to rephrase this. It's the poopification of TikTok. <laughs> but the important thing is actually the subtitle, which says, uh, How Exactly Platforms Die. Um, this is an amazing article. It really, you know, it's one of these things that I've always kind of felt, uh, but I haven't really seen anyone put it in writing. And and this person puts it in writing extremely eloquently. Basically, the the, the thesis here is, and they use Amazon, uh, I think they use Instagram and they use TikTok as examples. I'm not actually on Instagram or TikTok. Are you on Instagram, Patrick, or TikTok? Uh, I think I have an account. I think a lot of these I have an account, and that's about the extent of my being on. <laughs> okay. Um, so the what they talk about here, which I've definitely seen, is is you know in the beginning you're trying to spin up this platform, so you have this cold start problem. You know, like how do you get good content on TikTok? How, how does how do you get the first hundred people on TikTok? Right. And so what they do is they set up a bunch of really friendly deals and they really focus on content creation. They give great tools. Um, they do rev share with content creators. They get famous content creators on and they give them money up front, et cetera, et cetera. And so it becomes a, a great place for content creators. So they go there. Um, a lot of these platforms, I mean, Amazon is notable for this. Um, you know, if you're exclusive on Amazon, uh, you know, they would they would actually subsidize your your content so you could actually sell you know a beach ball on amazon 
for $14 because for every beach ball you sell, Amazon will literally give you an extra dollar. So they were running, this is in the 90s, Amazon was running everything at a huge loss. Um, and all of it was in service of creators. So a bunch of creators flocked to the platform, sign all sorts of exclusivity deals. Um, and then the platform kind of gets the creators and they say, look, like we kind of have these people now. So now, you know, we could just kind of exploit them and let's focus on um, um, uh, users. Right. And so, so Amazon now says, OK, you know, forget about creators. We have all the creators. Let's focus on basically, you know, getting as many you know, people to buy as many things as possible, or in the case of TikTok, get as many people to watch as many videos as possible, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so they go down that rabbit hole. And at some point, they get kind of a lion's share of the people, and that becomes saturated. There's actually a third element, which is the advertising. So Amazon, if you look at it now, they'll actually... A lot of the search results are sponsored, which is really weird if you think about it. It's like someone's paying for the opportunity to sell you a beach ball, right? It's kind of weird. And whether you buy it or not, that person's out that money. This is really the opposite of what it was when it started, where instead of Amazon paying the beach ball company and subsidizing their products, now the beach ball company has to subsidize Amazon, like, you know, to, to make their beach ball show up at the top. And the thing about, you know, advertising, especially like in the case of Amazon, where there's not an advertiser, it's just Amazon, is you're you end up basically squeezing both of those people. And and you can just squeeze them as much as you uh uh you know, as much as you're willing to tolerate them sort of leaving your platform. And so invariably, you know, because of short-term thinking, platforms squeeze too hard, people leave and and then the platform becomes like desolate. I mean, it hasn't happened in the case of Amazon, but you know, with Instagram and TikTok, all the metrics are trending downward. Um, I thought it was amazing the way that this person really laid it out. I think there's a ton of truth to it. Is it written by Cory Doctorow? That's what it looks like. Uh, yeah. Is that a famous person? I have no idea who that oh, is. Yes, it's okay. <laughs> who is that? Like, yeah, what yeah. are they known for? Oh, they. I mean, they've written a lot of things. They've written, I think, fiction books as well. But they uh, do a lot of like writing and you know introspection of the tech industry. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. You know, I'm not very yeah. good at. You know, I probably should be better at when I read a really good article, noting the author. Um, but I haven't really. It's always been kind of a blind spot. I guess he was the one who ran Boing Boing for a long time. If you ever ended up oh, on that yeah. side, yeah. So. Very yeah, I I I try not to attack social media because I don't I I don't, I don't participate. So I feel like it's a easy target for me to to cast stones. But I do I I think this is this cycle is very hard, right? You want to build something up, how do you maintain it? It's, it? It goes by a lot of names and a lot of cycles. But yeah, this is very difficult trade off. Like long term metrics is what you want, right? How do you keep users engaged for one, two, three, four years? But by definition, those are very hard to to actually like know what a user is going to do two years from now when you're you know ninety days into a project, and so it you end up optimizing for results. Uh, but whose results is uh, I, I think that was an accurate arc of uh, choosing who you're going to optimize for. Yeah, totally. 
Uh, I guess in a similar vein, um, there's been, and and not going to, you know, sort of fully go into it, but there's been some controversy with Unity, which we've talked about on the show before, uh, a a game engine, um, and changing some of their pricing practices. And there's another game engine, Godot, and Godot uh, is open source. uh, So of course, it doesn't have any costs associated with it, or at least any monetary cost you have to pay out uh, initially. And so a lot of people have been talking about, oh, now's the time you really should move to Godot. Godot's gotten a lot better. Um, you see a l- little bit of the same thing with Blender. Blender's really coming to its own, despite being actually a very old project. Um, but like you see a lot of new stuff getting poured in, into Blender recently, or at least I have. Uh, it's become part of the, the zeitgeist and just really a mature mm-hmm. product. And so um, people were talking about, and then there was a couple of famous, you know, kind of like live streams of independent game developers porting their games from, you know, Unity to Godot. And this, you know, start everyone got really excited. Um, and so someone wrote an article that was sort of like, you know, basically that this is not true, that there are some functions in, in Godot around ray tracing that are just really, really bad and you should not move to Godot. Godot is not ready. It's not mature. It's not whatever. Um, and the, I guess, benevolent dictator for life, BDFL, this is like a commenter. Anyways, who <laughs> yeah. runs the Sam Pruden, I guess is, I, I don't know that much about the Godot project. So if I'm messing this up, I apologize. But I guess he's the benevolent dictator for life of Godot. So he's sort of like the person in charge. and. Um, so he wrote a response to this person's article about, you know, Godot is not a replacement for Unity. And um, actually, as weird as it sounds, the reason I bring it up here is for two reasons. It has almost nothing to do with any of the stuff I've talked about so far. Uh, and so the two reasons I think that this article is worth a, a link, you should, you should check it out, is one, the way the diploma, diplomacy that, uh, that Sam handles this response is incredible. So someone has basically penned an article, pointed out like some some flaws in a project he's worked on and put enormous amounts of time in. And he gives them every benefit of the doubt over and over again. Now, I don't know the person who wrote the first article. I don't know anything about Godot. Uh, but, you know, some analysis says like, it, or even just a simple reading um, and, and sort of looking at Sam's responses, it's very likely that they cherry picked some some sort of like worst case numbers and then some other worst case stuff, and then got like, you know, basically something that made Godot look very bad performance wise. But the diplomacy is Sam responding in a public manner, but being just very restrained and saying, look, maybe, maybe they just, you know, happen to pick a, a, an idiomatic case here where like, it's not actually the normal case. Most of our stuff doesn't fall to this problem, but they are right. This one thing for legacy reasons, hasn't been refactored and does suffer performance problems. So they give credit where credit is due, that yes, this is bad. Yes, we should fix this. Give benefit of the doubt. Just so, I guess, like refreshing to read someone handle something without like saying it's my job to just like flame out and like, you know, scream at everyone and just tell them these people are stupid and our project is better. And instead just handle it very gracefully. That's that's, that's sort of like thing one. It's going to be really dense. Thing two uh, is actually goes into a pretty awesome like description of how if you want to write, you know, a core game engine as an example, but you want hooks for a scripting language. So Godot has a, a scripting language, but it also has hooks for other languages, you know, C++ or you know, Python or, or whatever. And you want these hooks. You have to think a lot about how other bindings are going to call into your core core library and the languages it's developed in. And so there's a discussion about this. Uh, I called it a BI application binary interface, which is how actual you know parameters get pushed into a set of contiguous memory to be passed from one program 
one part of the program to another, right? So in Python, you got to kind of set some specific bytes in a certain way so that you can pass it into Godot and then Godot knows what to do. And this is normally accomplished by some sort of API, right? Which is like the sort of human readable description of the function. Like this is a function that takes in an integer as a parameter. Um, but of course, like once you sort of compile it, you, you don't actually need that anymore. As long as if your assembly language puts an integer in the right spot, jumps to some other correct location of the program and knows how to go grab that, you know, data that you put there, you don't need to know what the parameter names are. They're not used intrinsically by the program. Uh, and so there's a description that goes through that, which I just thought was actually really well done, pointing out something that you don't normally think about, which is they have some primitive types. And then what they tried to do, except in some edge cases, is make sure that all of their functions adhere to the same few types. So if you're writing a wrapper, you don't have to make arbitrary data structures. Instead, your data structures are composed of all of these primitive types. And then you, by composition, get a full-featured API uh, and, and sort of facilitate this wrapper thing. Um, and then in trans internally, they make sure that they sort of use those primitives as much as they can so you don't have to do this unpacking, repacking, conversion, uh, and the code just is sort of compiled away, right? It just becomes a no-op that the data just flows and it doesn't have to be parsed or you know, are mangled in some way or unmangled. And so I just thought, actually, that was a very interesting read from a technical aspect of what someone building, uh, a, in this case, it's a game engine, but any application where you're expecting people to interact with it from other languages, um, just a, a really fascinating uh, sort of read there. And I would encourage people, it's not super long, despite I probably spent more time talking about it, but uh, definitely check it out. Very interesting. Yeah, so I think, you know, there's there's the Sam Pruden article and then there's a response from the Godot lead dev, which is linked to from that article. And I think oh, did a lot I of the backwards? binding stuff. Well, no, I think I think you know, it's just one click away. So you want to check read what oh, Sam yes. wrote and then check out the response and in the response there's code samples and they dive in really deep on this. You're right. I'm sorry. I, yeah, so I messed that up. So it's not Sam is a person who wrote the original article that that will have well, both linked. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, but <laughs> I have the names mixed up. Yeah. Protecting the innocent, Jason. It was on purpose. Well, actually, the, this gentleman who wrote the response to Sam, he also had a really insightful tweet that I happened to stumble upon where he said, you know, regardless of what you think of Godot, the fact that Godot exists is the reason or at least one of the chief reasons why Unity walked back that pricing plan. So sort of like, uh, you know, the idea is that open source is ultimately a moat that protects you from, uh, you know, the potential of like a monopoly or, or you know, commercial monopoly. Um, very cool. Yeah. Um, kind of a, a little bit of foreshadowing here, but uh, we'll talk about Godot a little bit later on in the show and in, in our tool of the show. But. For now we have. To, oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, sorry. One second. So just to make it clear. It's yeah. So it should have been Juan. Juan is the benevolent dictator for life of Godot. So Juan is the one I was I was talking about responding to Sam. So I apologize there for the name mix-ups. Hopefully, uh, didn't, didn't confuse anyone. Yeah, totally. So now it's time for book of the show. What's your book of the show, Patrick? My book of the show. You have to listen carefully. Is Math Games with Bad Drawings by Ben Orlin. So uh, last duo episode, I had Math with Bad Drawings by Ben Orlin. Uh, and this is Math Games. And so this is a, a, a pretty interesting read. It takes a lot of games. You probably know about Tic-Tac-Toe, 
the boxes game where you draw dots everywhere and you draw one line at a time and you take turns and just mm-hmm. kind of goes in depth about like what kind of uh, mathematical areas do these touch on? What are some variations of these games? Like, are the games themselves interesting or not interesting at the start? And then how do you sort of like propel them forward? So in the example of, is it called Dots and Boxes? I don't remember. Anyways, we have the dots. Yeah, that's right. You draw draw lines and you make a square and then you get to go bonus turn. And so he goes through some of the strategies, which most people probably stumble upon. But then he gives some other games that sound really similar and some are are sort of a, a duel like they're equivalent and so uh, it's just the same game in a different disguise but then some are actually sort of fundamentally different so as an example uh, you may not think it's a, a major change but it actually becomes a fundamentally different problem which is instead of drawing between two dots up down left right what happens if you can draw an arbitrary length line up down or left right how does the game oh. change and so it feels like this very subtle difference, but in practice, if you can draw, start and then draw to the right, you know, sort of arbitrary length, the entire dynamics of the game shift around. Wow, really cool. I bought the Math with Bad Drawings um, after Patrick mentioned it on that episode, and it's been very entertaining. Um, you know, it has has great, it does have great, well, uh, entertaining <laughs> bad drawings. <laughs> and, really uh, good yeah. bad drawings. Yeah, I've been really entertained. I think it's uh, it's been it's been good. Um, Definitely so not an audiobook. I think. Oh yeah, it wouldn't be a good audiobook. Well, yeah, I think I'll grab this one too. Probably. Um, anything with games that I'm kind of a sucker, uh, I have to open the wallet. Amazon's had me figured out. <laughs> <laughs> they subsidize this. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all right, my book is the Invisible Hook: The Hidden Economics of Pirates. So I always wondered this, like, you know, if you're a pirate, um, you know, let's say you take over and this is like literally not a software pirate or whatever, but literally, you know, buccaneer <laughs> pirate, you know, in the 1600s or whatever. You know, if, if you're a pirate and you take over a ship, like what really happens after that? I mean, could you just sell that ship at a port? I mean, wouldn't they know that you stole the ship? I mean, it just, I mean, like imagine in the real world, I guess the, the equivalent would be like a car thief or something, but, but those people, they have like chop shops that chop the car up. In I pieces. thought you were going to say NFT. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Oh my gosh. There's, there's still people in my social network really pushing NFT hard. And I'm like, dude, it's over. Come on. <laughs> I mean, just throw in the towel. Um, but yeah, like, you know, what happens with this giant ship? I mean, you steal the ship. It has like tons Carry and tons cost. of spices in it. You know, like, how do you really get away with that? How is this profitable? How does that actually work? Um, it's really, really interesting. Um, you know, the way that you can fence uh, an entire ship. Fence means to, you know, sell something, you know, kind of uh, that doesn't belong to you. Um, the way you can fence an entire ship or the way that pirates ultimately got spices that they stole and sold them to like you know individual towns and stuff really really interesting stuff one thing i i didn't know about was the extent of these uh they call them letters of marquee so basically the difference between a buccaneer and a pirate is a buccaneer has the authority of at least one country so you know like you might go to the english governor or king or I don't know who, but it goes some English authority and he will give you a letter of marquee, which basically says, you know, for example, if England's at war with France, 
or it's Spain or what have you, you can sink as many or, or capture as many French boats as you want. Um, and the English will, uh, in fact, they'll reward you for it. And so a lot of pirates were actually buccaneers. So they would fly like a British flag. They would take Spanish ships hostage, and then they could go to any British or uh, English uh, town and sell the ship and sell the stuff, right? Because they have that authority. And so that's how it worked for a lot of people. But then, you know, some of the most notorious pirates, they basically had their own, you know, kind of uh, totally unstructured nation. So there would be pirate islands where you could, you know, sell a boat and they would figure out what to do with it. Of course, they'd like charge you, um, you know, premium for that, but they would, they would figure out a way to make money off that. Um, the whole thing was really interesting. I mean, I know it's kind of a weird rabbit hole to go down, but it, it, I heard, I read a lot of things that really surprised me. Awesome. Uh, That that actually sounds really interesting now that you got me. Now I'm, now I'm curious because I feel like it's one of those things, everybody knows what a pirate is, but then if you think, like you said, one level deeper, wait a minute, you know, hang on, what do you actually do with an entire boat that needs a crew? Like, how do you put people on it and sail it to where you want it to go? And you need to damage it. To, to, to take it over, but not damage it so much that like you can't sell it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah, the whole thing is really, is really interesting. Um, um, another thing that really shocked me was just like how much like physical gold was, 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 uh, transported from South America to Europe. Like it was an unbelievable mm. amount. Just, they had this thing called the treasure fleet. It was literally like a huge fleet of giant ships. And these were pretty much like no pirate would, at least I haven't read of any pirate that would ever challenge this. It's just like an enormous juggernaut of a fleet of, of, of like, uh, you know, privateers and all these like boats, but they would just transport an unbelievable amount of gold, um, uh, across the Atlantic ocean. Um, so yeah, the whole thing is really interesting and yeah, it's definitely worth the read. Oh, very good. This is time for tool of the show. All right. What's your tool of the show? So mine is a game sticking with uh, my classic, but this is one I, I, we don't spend a ton of time on it. I think everyone knows what uh, this game is or, or if they haven't, they're about to lose hours and hours and hours of their life. And <laughs> I apologize in advance. Um, but this game is Factorio. So Factorio, uh, I think really almost kicked off a genre. I, I think there was yeah. like games that preceded it, of course, but now there's a lot of follow on satisfactory Dyson sphere program. I'm sure there's a dozen others, um, yep. but Factorio, the reason why I recently got into, it, I, I wasn't sure I would like it. The graphics were kind of meh. Um, so I played a demo and then I realized I spent more time playing the demo than I probably like have played most video games that I own. Uh, and so I realized that I probably should just buy it and play it. But the reason why, I started getting into it is they uh, recently did a bunch of work to support controllers. I was able to play it on my Steam Deck. So they have on Steam Deck. Oh. I think they have it on Switch now um, was is sort of why they added controller support. Um, but this is the reason why I sort of picked it. I always knew you need mouse and keyboard and just time with in front of mouse and keyboard after a long day of doing it for work didn't really appeal to me. But we talked on the show before. I got a Steam Deck now. So I've been playing Factorio. I have no idea, to be clear. I, I know the rabbit hole. I know how like people... I don't know what happens in later levels, I'm sure, or later stages. I'm sure your Steam Deck will bog down. But for just picking up and playing, I've played a lot already. Uh, and uh, I've never really sort of said, oh, man, this is just running. This is unbearable. This is too slow. Yeah, you know, the thing that Factorio and 
its descendants have done really well is put you in control of the pace of the game. So if you look at something like Civilization, you know, you move your units and then you click end turn and then you have to kind of wait for everybody else. And so, you know, maybe in the beginning of the game where there's a lot or maybe the end of the game in Civilization where there's a lot of things going on, there's units all over the map, then the pace like really slows down. Um, And at the beginning of the game, it just feels like the game is taking forever, right? Um, You know, Factorio has this beautiful dynamic where, you know, as soon as you get the the factories, like the beginning factory, you're kind of then limited by your own creativity. You know, you can you can end up with, you know, even with just the initial factory, you can end up with a massive sprawling base or you could have just three factories and you build everything by hand and and so the pace like you your your aptitude is kind of controlling the pace of the game and it never feels like the game kind of gets away from you or is boring yeah we didn't actually say what the game is so i guess for for the for the few people who don't know this is a i guess a factory simulator so mm-hmm. the rough idea is there are resources out in the world uh, of various types and then there's ways of, you know, building things to extract resources and then a chain to sort of finished goods. And so you need to process iron ore into iron plates and iron plates into steel beams or into gears or sprockets. And so you sort of have these chains of dependency and you want to build better and better, you know, factories that are faster and, and conveyor belts. But to do that, you need sort of more high tier products, which have levels below them. So, you know, eight stages of inputs to get to the item you need to construct your, you know, whatever you're building at the end. And so you build up these longer, longer chains. Like Jason said, I guess a lot of analogy for code. You can, you have to debug it when something's going into the wrong, wrong input. You got to like, you can have spaghetti code. You can have it very modularized and everyone sort of takes their own, own bent to it. And it sounds horrible, uh, it, I, I know it really does, but it's just one of those things to, like Jason said, kind of zone out and you just monkey around and there's no real exact winning and losing. You're just trying to get better and better. Yep. Yeah, it's really satisfying. Um, cool. All right. My tool of the show is AI Hero, which is a game that I made. Uh, I've been working on this game for years and years, uh, just a tiny bit of time here and there. Um, and basically, I set a goal for myself many years ago that that I wanted to teach AI, but I wanted to teach in a way that had no words. Um, and I felt like that was a succinct way of kind of explaining, you know, you know, that I wanted to 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 teach to demonstrate AI, but without having to tell people like, you know, turn to page five hundred sixty nine of this conference proceedings, right? So um, it's pretty ambitious goal and it took me a really long time to kind of find the fun so to speak so um the premise of the of the game and you can get it on ios and android it's totally free there's no ads there's no in-app purchases or none of that stuff um the premise of it is you have to set these control points in a way that creates certain curves or certain circles or other shapes and those shapes have to kind of separate clusters of labels. Mm. So you're on this graph grid and there's sort of a cluster of green points and a cluster of red points. And you have to, by you know, using your finger and moving these control points, you know, find that curve that separates those points. And then as it gets harder, you end up with 
four, five, six, seven different categories. And so you have to have these sort of intersecting shapes that can allow you to separate all these different classes. So it turns out, you know, with maybe two shapes, you can actually separate, you know, four or five, six different classes if you like bend one shape around another and stuff. So, so, you know, it did kind of accomplish that thing I set out to do. Um, you know, originally the plan was to, for it to be an educational game. Uh, but what I found is it really appealed to people of all ages. Um, you know, my kids played it, thought it was pretty fun. Um, but a lot of adults were finding it fun. And so, so I just ended up releasing it as kind of an AI themed uh, puzzle game for, for all ages. Um, but uh, it's written in Godot. So kind of a throwback to 10, 15 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> I don't have to worry about Unity coming after me for my free game or anything like that. Um, but uh, I did find Godot to be very pleasant to work with. Um, it is a 2D game. So, you know, it's not, you know, it's not a huge technical achievement. And so I wouldn't say I stressed Godot in any any big way, but um, I found the feedback loop to be really nice. One of the things that Unity and Godot do, which I think is really interesting, is they let you basically play, you know, like a module of the game. Like, for example, um, in Godot, they're called scenes. I don't know what they're called in Unity, but, you know, like you could have a scene, which is, uh mario right and you can have another scene which is you know level three or something and you can actually just play the mario scene just by itself as a game and you could just be mario and just jump around in an empty world um and so that way you can test like certain pieces of the game without having to test the whole thing um i found that really useful as i was developing um but yeah check it out it's totally free um Hopefully, uh, y'all find it uh, pretty fun. Awesome. All right. I think it's time to talk about desktop user interfaces. Yeah. So, Patrick, what is a user interface? It is an interface a user uses. All right. Uh, that's the end of the show, everyone. <laughs> Patreon subscribers. <laughs> no, I mean, I think this this is something everyone everyone bumps into or, or starts out into, which is, you know, have some some cool function, some application. Jason was just talking about his game. But ultimately, we need a way of displaying that to the, the user. So, of course, uh, you know, currently a lot of that could be web. You could build a, a website with, you know, JavaScript or another, another language that, that gives you that ability. Um, it could be a command line interface. It could be, hey, I'm prompting the user in, in sort of a text adventure game. Could be a user interface there, but I still want to have options to displaying inventory and stuff. But the one I think we're going to talk about today is when you're on a you know desktop, so Windows or Mac OS or Linux or dot 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 dot. dot I'm not going to try to list them all because someone's going to write us in that we left theirs off. Uh, and you want to you want to you wanna have a way for a user to interact with a running program, uh, and you need to write code to do that. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, you know, I don't know if we've ever done an episode on command line interfaces. Maybe that needs to be the next episode. But, oh, um, okay. you know, there's there's a lot uh, around, you know, making a good command line interface and, you know, terminal. Uh, you can there's a whole bunch of really interesting programs there. Um, but by and large, you know, when most people think of a user interface for the desktop, they're thinking about something that opens some kind of window and has a point and click interface and all of that. Um, you know, it's worth calling out that this is a lot more complicated than web and mobile. You know, I mean, mobile, 
Um, you know, the UI is really front and center to the whole experience. Um, you know, a lot of mobile apps are just veneer around business logic that runs somewhere else. Like imagine your, you know, like your banking app, for example, you know, when you go to pay somebody in your banking app or pay a bill, you know, your phone doesn't literally pay the bill. Um, <laughs> your phone just sends a request to some server that does all of that. Um, similarly on the website, you know, your browser isn't literally calling some API to move money around. All of those are going to the server. Um, so using, let's say Chase Bank, for example, so your browser goes to the Chase server and then the Chase server does server to server communication. So all the business logic lives there. Um, Conversely, the desktop is sort of the opposite, where if you want to do business logic, if you need a good debugger, if um, you want to build an analysis tool and things like that, it's great. But for graphical user interfaces, the desktop is challenging. And often it could be hard to know even where to get started there. Um, I feel like... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, like a few years ago, I think the story was much more around like per operating system, you know, building it. So you would, you know, if you were building on Windows, you would go into Visual Studio and and you would, you know, kind of do the very Windows specific way if you're doing Linux, maybe you would do something something else. And, and everybody sort of had their own sort of way of developing this, you know, so-called native, native looking apps. And I think as you were kind of mentioning, I think that's where the phones have an expected feel. Like how things work on Android is actually different than how things are expected to work on iOS. So if you have an iOS app, people expect certain functionalities and behaviors around like swipes or around dragging up or down or like certain things that's like very pre-canned. Whereas I feel there was more differences historically between like how something would work in Linux versus Windows versus Mac OS, how buttons would look and how interactions would, would set. But there's also more diversity just within a platform. So like you mentioned in Windows or whatever, like, or, or whatever, there, there could be, you know, a UI popping up that has, I guess what you would call like a normal desktop app. But to be clear, you could also pop open a game and have a UI in a window right, as well right. and have a, a HUD and, you know, have like buttons that are graphical and they look very different. And so there's all these, you know, different ones. But I think today, the number of like platforms have come to also allow people to develop across multiple, um, you know, sort of targeted desktop OS environments. Uh, and sort of really capture this. I like really sort of come into their own around, hey, this is like a good way of doing this development strategy. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I, another thing too is, you know, in the case of mobile, um, in the case of web, the web is extremely uniform. People have done an amazing job of of setting up things so that you can have relatively common experience. It doesn't matter whether you're on the phone or the desktop. And there's all sorts of ways to do... Um, like these reactive websites where, you know, if the if the column width is shorter, then it doesn't do a sidebar and all of that is really easy to do. Um, I mean, even programming throwdown.com, if you look at it at a phone or if you shrink the browser window on your desktop to be really thin, you know, things will start collapsing and things that were just always visible will become little hamburger menus. And I didn't code any of that myself. I mean, all of that is just built into the web tools that I was using. Um, on mobile, you know, there's really only two big players, right? There's iOS and Android. And because mobile is so important, most companies or even most developers will create two copies of their, of their code. So you'll have, you'll have an iOS app, you'll have an Android app, and they'll, 
know, you can use Flutter and some of these things, but most people, I would say the vast majority are right, are building two separate apps. And you never have to worry then about like, oh, like what if I need to do something that is, you know, not supported by Flutter or I need to use this iOS plugin and interop and all of that. Um, conversely on desktop, you know, I don't know what the market share numbers are like, but I always feel like I need to support at least Mac and Windows. Um, but um, if not, if not also Linux. But um I'm usually in much more of a hurry when I'm building a desktop app, right? Because usually it's an app for developers. It's an internal tool or it's something like that. And so I don't want to have three different versions. Like I don't want to spend that time. And so you're kind of caught with, with the situation where you have to be really quick, but you're using a, a you know, you're in a, you're in a place that isn't very well traveled. So it's a difficult position to be in. Um, so I have a few different options here. I'll kind of list them uh, in no particular order. Um, I've actually really enjoyed Qt. Have you ever used Qt, Patrick, like as a developer? I only a little bit. I think I've, I think Qt does one of those uh, hand, like predating uh, a lot of the sort of modern, more portable coding practices. So in C++, I feel like, you know, <laughs> Qt was a, a big influence there. So we have like Qt and Boost, but then the standard library coming along and getting a lot better. But they had to introduce a lot of the more high-level modules uh, really early to make UI programming work. And so I feel like, uh, yeah, I did interact with it and sort of, we'll talk about later, but like asynchronous or, you know, threading and these kinds of things, which had very poor sort of out-of-the-box support, and then Qt sort of stepped up and did that. So not only has it got the UI stuff, but it has a lot of C++ modules that, you know, came along later in other forms, but they were, were pretty early to the game in helping, like, level up the sophistication of C++ developers. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I've actually only used PyQt, or I think now it's oh. called Qt <laughs> for Python, um, which is like a you know, a wrapper around the C++ code. And so you could definitely, I could definitely see the C++ influence when I look at Qt for Python, just the way that, you know, objects are kind of passed into other objects. Like it doesn't feel really that Pythonic. Um, but uh, but the things that really st stood out, so Qt, the idea with Qt is that, you know, it's not a native looking app. So if you were to build an app in Qt on your Windows machine, and you were to build an app using the Visual Studio, um, you know, a designer, they're going to look totally different. So Qt has their own kind of buttons, their own text boxes that they have designed themselves. And so, you know, at some point, like way down in the Qt code, like they're rendering like raw pixels. Uh, so they've like, you know, they have total control over the the canvas and the window. Uh, you, you know, you're obviously abstracted from all of that. Um, but, you know, it has this nice like side effect where, you know, if you have a Qt app on Mac or on Windows or on Linux, you know, it should look more or less the same. I couldn't say it would be exactly pixel for pixel, but, but, you know, it's the, it's, it's going to be very consistent. Um, conversely, if you were to use WX widgets, which is another option, that's a very interesting, um, uh, tool. The way it works is you write your WX widgets code, and then it kind of on the fly, I guess it's like a transpiler, although it's not really compiling, but like on the fly, it's mapping your 
function calls to the low level thing. So for example, you tell WX widgets, you know, draw a text box. And, you know, if it's on, it has some check, it says, oh, am I on Windows? Oh, I am. Okay, call this native Windows function to draw a text box. Um, oh, I'm on Linux. Okay, call this native Linux function. And so you get a native UI. Um, at the time, this was like WX Widgets is very, is very dated, or it's not dated, it's very modern, kept up to date, but it's, it's it started a long time ago. You know, and at the time, you know, people were much more in tune with what a desktop app should look like on Windows. And so WX Widgets, you know, targeting, you know, resolving down to these native desktop uh, widgets, um, you know, was, was kind of a nice look and feel. Um, it has the downside that, um, you know, if, for example, a text box is taller in Linux than it is in Windows, well, then it's going to look taller. And so if you run the same app, and you expected the text box to be, you know, 60 pixels high. And now Linux, it's 70 pixels high. Now, now, like maybe part of your app, you know, fell off the bottom of the page and you can't get to it. Um, and there's just a bunch of visual inconsistencies like this. So you really have to, you know, run your app in all these different OSs all the time and make sure that it looks good in all of them. So that's kind of the, the trade-off there. Um, I feel like... Qt is probably a better bet now. I mean, people, um, Qt has taken like such a large market share that people kind of have a spot in their brain for the Qt UI, you know? So I don't think you're shocking people anymore. And, you know, you have the, you don't have the other downsides. You brought up a, an interesting point there. If you go back, I don't know exactly when WX widgets, I guess we look it up, but if you go back 10, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, People probably, I mean, that's some folks listening are like, uh, what? No, I'm not going back that far. I don't remember what was going on. Uh, but <laughs> when I was no, a newborn, <laughs> when you go back 15 years though, like most folks didn't know how to use a, com if they said, I know how to use a computer, they meant like, I know how to use windows and I know how to use like these apps in windows. Uh, they probably didn't really bump into other operating systems or, or if they were on, you know, uh, you know, OSX at the time, I guess, like, you know, they, they knew or Linux, they knew one thing. Um, but now in, in our guests and a little bit in our modern lives, I think it's much more common for people like most of the folks I know and work with, you know, they'll have a, a phone that runs some operating system, Android or, or iOS. They probably have an operating system with apps on their TV that's different. They have one on, you know, their desktop is something, but they might have a gaming desktop and a laptop for work and their laptop may be a you know, MacBook, but their desktop is a Windows gaming machine. So I feel like people are much more likely to have encountered and be proficient at various operating systems. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And, and on the, you know, go, coming at it from the other direction, the operating systems have largely standardized on you know, an ideal user interface. And you can read all about material UI and all these different um, kind of a... Uh, um, philosophies around UI. And I think a lot of that has collapsed to where, you know, you have a pretty good expectation when you do something on your TV, what it's going to do. Like most people know, you know, if you press on a text box on your TV or your phone or whatever, a keyboard is going to pop up. All right. So these are just assumptions that you couldn't make. Um, and here's, here's a random piece of trivia, Patrick. How old is WX widgets? Take a guess. Uh, it's pretty. I, I. I. I mean. I know. I, I. feel pretty good about saying it's at least when I started working, which I'm gonna say how many, but I, 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 greater than 15. So I'm gonna guess 20. It is 31 years old. No way. <laughs> 
That is wild. Um, way older than I thought. Um, so yeah, QT and WX widgets, they occupy the same space more or less. Uh, one thing that's really important that I would highly recommend is um, there's something called QT Creator. And in WX widgets, it's called WX Form Designer. And there's probably a new one now. That's, that's, that's a program that I used a long time ago. But these things will do code generation. So, you know, you kind of set up the, the, the layout the way you want. You say, oh, I want a text box here. I want a label here. You know, reserve this spot for some custom widget, which you don't know about, but I'm telling you it's a certain size. Put a combo box here. And then, uh, and then you press a button and it generates code. It can generate C++ code. It can generate Python code. And so that Python code that it generates, you can actually run that. And you will get a form or you know a total desktop app. It's just none of the buttons will do anything, right? Um, and all of the spin boxes will go to infinity. There, there's no guardrails on them, right? Um, and so then you know, you have to go and implement all that business logic. But um, but yeah, th- that those tools are incredibly powerful. Like you, you could end up spending a lot of time just kind of aligning things, you know, doing a whole bunch of visual work. And if you're sitting there looking at code, saying like, okay, line 67, you know, this object needs to be like a little bit further down. Like it's kind of hard, sort of like a, uh, what is it? Rubbing your belly and patting your head at the same time <laughs> or whatever. It was like, it's kind of hard to like write code, but then be thinking solely about how this is going to look. Um, it's much, much easier to use a graphical designer. Um, and it has this other, uh, this other nice side effect where it kind of keeps your UI and your business logic separate. Because if you put business logic in those files and you rerun the designer, well, guess what? It just deleted all of your business logic. So it kind of forces you to like separate um, those two things, which is uh, you might look at that and say, that's really frustrating, but you'll be better off uh, for it. I think the the next one that we're going to talk about uh, was is sort of I guess it was surprising. Like when I first heard about it, I sort of laughed and was like, "What? No, it's not going to be a good idea." And it still does get ridicule from from the sort of like optimization people, like, "Oh, wow, this is such an inefficient way of doing things. It's so slow." Um, and that was when Chrome released. One of the things they did separate from just the browser is they released uh, a sort of high efficiency C plus plus. JavaScript execution engine so that you could run JavaScript sort of on your desktop uh, and use it for things outside of Chrome if you wanted. I think V8, I think is what it was called. Um, right. And so this combination and, and having an open source component to the Chromium, but also to this V8 engine enabled this next one, which is Electron, which uh, really sort of it was the first time I at least encountered people truly going for this hybrid thing on desktop where like you're writing almost a web page, but it's also a desktop app. Yeah, and so you know, if you use Visual Studio Code, or if you use Discord, uh, the desktop app, um, these are either done in Electron or they're done in a derivative. So I think nowadays there's Neutrino, there's a whole bunch of alternatives, but but you know, without any loss of generality, we're going to talk about the first one, which is Electron. Um, but a ton of really popular apps are actually written in Electron. Um, so the way Electron works, basically, if you've ever built a website, you've probably started by testing the website out on your own computer. So you know, you spin up a very simple web server on your own computer and you go to, you know, localhost colon 8088 or something like that. 
and you get to see your website and you can interact with it and make changes and reload and all of that. And then when you're happy, you deploy it to some server that other people can look at. And so the idea with Electron is, you know, you just you just live in that first part, right? So when an Electron app starts, you know, it starts a local web server that, um, you know, only your local machine can get to. It's locked down. Um, and then separately, you have a, a program that visits that web server. And so in the case of, let's say, Visual Studio Code, you know, it starts up a web server and then it, um, and, and then it, it has its own internal browser. This is getting to Patrick's comment. You know, it, you, you're deploying like a literal browser with every app. Um, and so it, it uh, launches its own browser, which knows to talk to its own uh, web server. And so you get this desktop app, um, but you have all of the advantages of the web frameworks. So, you know, we talked about how, you know, the website knows what size it is and people have written zillions of lines of code to make it look beautiful, like in all these different situations. And you get all of that in a desktop app. So, um, so Electron is extremely powerful. Like if you, um, for example, if you need something that draws a bunch of graphs, well, like Qt has some basic graphing structure if you want to plot some time series and things like that. But if you start getting into complicated graphs, um, you know, if you need certain like scatter plots, you know, if you need, uh, you know, some kind of clustering and you need to visualize that, you know, the web just has so many resources, such a long tail of different resources that like you can be confident you'll find just about anything. Um, and, uh, uh, and so you can, you don't have to worry about that. You can bring it in. It has this other benefit where, you know, if you do want, I mean, Discord's a good example of this. If you want to have a website and a desktop app, well, now you only have to write it once. You know, the same UI code that if you go to discord.com is literally the same UI code you're running in the desktop app. And so that uh, saves them a lot of work. Not being a web developer, it's still, it's kind of like confusing to me. Like it, it boggles my mind that it like sort of works and it does, like you said, I use I used Atom for a long time. I think it's now like right. deprecated in favor of VS Code. Um, but it's just kind of weird to me that it just works. Like you are, like you said, you're running a like custom browser, but you don't know. It just feels normal. It just feels like a regular app. Yeah, I mean, you have this other issue, which is um, most of these, like Electron, Neutrino, they're running a JavaScript web server. So even the server is JavaScript. And so what that means is if your business logic is in C++, now you actually need a third process. You know, you need the browser, you need the web server that's hosting the UI, and now you need your business logic in a third program, and you have to do inter-process communication to pass, you know, so, so for example, in Discord, right, you click a button, let's say. Uh, now, Discord might all be written in JavaScript, but let's pretend like let's pretend like the business logic is written in C++ just to explain. So, you know, in Discord, you, know, you click a button, so that's, you know, the browser makes a HTTP post to the web server saying, you know, Patrick clicked the join channel button. And then that thing, you know, makes an inter-process communication call to the C++ code to say, "Hey, Patrick, you know, click the join channel game." 
that C++ code probably makes another HTTP request to some Discord server where you know it actually happens. And so you have a lot of these hops. Um, you know, don't let that scare you though. I mean, that sounds scary. It's like, oh, I have to set up this, you know, code contract, this you know, three-layer code contract um, to do anything. Um, but but in exchange, what you get is really powerful, and you can often, um, um, you know, your API often doesn't have to be that large. You know, if you parameterize the things you're doing, you might not actually need that many function calls to get a lot done. Like for example. You, know, you might have 30 different channels. If you leave any of them, it's the same function call, right? So you don't have to implement that a bunch of times. Off of the off of the sort of like single app stuff, uh, I think we had a couple uh, good good other things that sort of fall in the same category as Jason kind of mentioned. I would, you know, I've never seen the numbers, but I would bet it's a shockingly high percentage of applications written are written for internal use, for tests, for with only yep. in your, you know, just to support like use cases, or maybe they're even just throwaway. And so I would not be surprised if actually we don't see that uh, the, the sort of long lived examples you've been giving so far, because you know about them, are actually a relatively rare, even by amount of time spent, which would be weird. So, if, of course, they're more rare by count. But I think I would even go to say like a lot of the developer time is spent on developing apps that no more than a handful of people or anyone outside the company has ever seen. And so if that's the case, you have a little bit more latitude to consider things for the same purposes we've been doing and, and doing uh, sort of UI and, and interfaces and really helping like Jason was already showing like graphs and data. Sometimes you're just trying to provide visualization. And so your app really doesn't need a lot of business logic, maybe you've already processed it all down and it really just needs to do analysis or monitoring or, you know, something at the tail end and you can avoid a lot of the inner process communication. And so if that's true, uh, I would say your, your sort of field of view can open up pretty wide and you can start to consider other ways of uh, developing user interfaces or even applications for internal use. Yeah, totally. Have you ever used uh, Jupyter? I think it used to be called IPython Notebook. I have, but I famously am not a, a great Python person. So <laughs> uh, I always find it a little, the environment set up, making everything sure is installed. But yes, I, I think, you know, bump into them fairly often now. And actually, it's pretty convenient to have like code listed and then a result and then code listed and then a, you know, result uh, is is very uh, intuitive way of uh, sharing somebody's analysis. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, Google Colab, I think, is really going to it's one of these things that's like it's going to take a generation. But but, you know, Google. So for people who don't know, Google Colab is a you know computing environment where Google will give you GPU time for free. So if you need a GPU to train like some image processing model or something, you could use Google Colab. And uh, there are some limitations, I think. Uh, um, if your program takes more than 24 hours to run, they shut it down, things like that. Um, now you can get around all those limitations by by getting the pro version, which is only 10 bucks a month, which is, you know, I think, very reasonable. But um, especially because, you know, a GPU probably costs like $100 a month if you were to run it, uh, hundreds of dollars a month if you were to run it 24 7. Um, but, you know, Google Colab, I think, will really popularize. Uh, Jupyter and IPython even more um, than they have. And as Patrick said, it's 
that environment's broken up into cells and you can uh the way it works is that the last line of of each code block uh of each code cell is rendered right afterwards i mean you could also do prints and stuff like that and they'll show up but you know you can do a bunch of math and then at the end say you know table as just its own line in the last line of the cell and and that tells you know jupyter notebook that oh okay when i'm done with the computing this i want to print the table and it'll actually convert you know this like raw python data into like this beautiful html table or you know a plot or or other stuff so it's it's really neat um you know the the downside is it's very hard to actually show that to somebody else so you can give someone a Google Colab notebook, and they can run it themselves. But for example, if you wanted to just show the results to somebody, there isn't really an easy way to do that. You kind of have to just copy it and paste it to someone. Or I think you can export as PDF or something. But at that point, it's not really a interactive user interface. Um, so there is kind of a middle ground there called Streamlit. Um, so Streamlit is... You know, also kind of much more geared to internal analysis. So, it, you know, if you can plot time series and you can plot different graphs and do analysis, but you, know, you couldn't, for example, make a video game in Streamlit, uh, at least not easily. Um, but, you know, it's another kind of good avenue to go down. Um, and I guess maybe we'll just, we'll, we'll cap it off by also putting Unity and Godot in these game engines. You know, I think. Um, you know, I think that, uh, um, you know, in something like Godot or Unity, you know, you have much more control over the user interface. Um, you could be almost guaranteed it's going to look pixel for pixel exactly the same in every OS. It's got these advantages and the clear disadvantages are, you know, you're working kind of at the pixel level. So like even a button, like you literally have to draw the button, um, you know, and, and so, uh, some of these will have UI toolkits, but um, even then, it's very primitive. Like, you know, they won't have a pressed, you know, button image. So, um, so that's pretty low level. But uh, uh, for people who are doing a lot of like graphic intensive stuff, that could be a, a good option. At a high level, I think UIs are one of. The, I think I alluded to it earlier, but just to kind of cap it off, are one of these things where. Um, you run into it. It's, it's actually good to know how to do it. It's uh, one of those like perpetual, I should be better at doing this and being able to, you know, prop one open, pop something open, you know, quickly and, and sort of use for, for internal purposes. Um, but there are some also, again, I think like next level understanding that people have to do, especially at least if you're coming from sort of, I also say like Python or C plus plus or C or, or even Java, which is, uh, you know, we we're mentioning before is multi-threading. Because like all this different stuff going on, you might have like a, you want to render a spinning box, right? Like a little spinner to indicate your program is doing something. But code needs to be running the spinner for the spinner to look smooth. And so if you're going to be doing that, you need to be doing your execution on something else. And the, the sort of like first thing is you go into one of these creators and you draw a button. When you click the button, you run your computation. But of course, then the button is like stuck, depressed, and you're like mouth yeah. is frozen, right? Like this is everybody sort of like bumps into this early on is that, yeah. And I think the, the UI development tools themselves have gotten better about helping coach people into, you know, having a wizard where you already start off with, 
you know, hey, when a button is clicked, it's going to dispatch a message and you need to wait that message over here and sort of put the boilerplate code for you there to like hint to you that like, hey, this is what you ought to be doing. Um, but I, I think like this is one of the sort of first time people can run into race conditions where, hey, my code is processing, but someone clicked another button. So, you know, you, you, you see that basic primitive, like start, start computation, right? And then it's showing some progress. Cancel. Well, wait a minute. Most of the programs I've ever written didn't have an option to cancel what they were doing. I mean, you could kill the app. Right. They didn't have this notion of like stopping halfway through. You start them and they either, you know, error out or they finish. Like they don't have a mechanism for listening for, oh, actually, I want you to stop what you're doing. And so I think this is one of the places where people start to bump into needing some uh, thoughtful architecture. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I mean, on mobile and web to a lesser extent, they really hold your hand. Um, Like I know iOS and Android, if you do something on the main thread that takes more than a few milliseconds, you know, you'll, it'll pop up this big error uh, in your log saying, Hey, you know, don't do this. Like go put this on another thread or something. Um, And I think both of them, if you try to do an HTTP request on the main thread, they will just crash your app. And so it's their really aggressive way of, of saying, like, look, like you need to figure out threading and, and all of that. Otherwise, you can't even run this app. Um, but on the desktop, you know, there's it's just not that opinionated. And so you have to learn a lot of those along the way. Um, but yeah, I think another really important thing, and this is kind of true across the board, is to really separate your UI and your business logic. Um, like, for example, let's say you have an Electron app. Um, you know, if you if you architect the app in a certain way, you know, you could start up the UI and the UI is getting kind of its state from your C++ program. And if you have a bug in your business logic, which is where the vast majority of your bugs are going to be, um, you know, you can fix that bug without having to shut down the app and bring it back up. Um, so, you know, this is one thing a lot of people don't realize is you know, starting an app takes a long time. You know, on mobile, on desktop, like you're talking like multiple seconds to start an app um, just to like get Hello World. Uh, it's just the OS is doing all sorts of crazy stuff under the hood. You know, there's usually like a visual, like the app kind of window pops up out of nowhere. All of that, you know, takes time. And while it doesn't sound like a lot of time, it really, really adds up. Um, so, you know, you can get around a lot of that. And, and, you know, even if it's not just a time thing, it is frustrating as a developer. Like, oh, you know, I forgot a colon. Now I have to, like, click the X on the UI and start it up again and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, you could easily, you know, with some clever architecture, you could easily get into a position where, you know, those two are running independently. And um, one of them knows, like, like, you can send a message from your, business logic process to your UI lo- uh, logic to your UI process saying, hey, you know, I'm back. Like I died and I came back and this is new me. And then your UI knows to like clear everything and start over without having to actually tear down all of the graphical elements. So so um, I've definitely been guilty of this where, um, you know, I didn't architect things this way. And then um, you know, I just found myself taking, you know, 30, 40, 50 seconds to, to, to do every single iteration and you can easily kind of get yourself frustrated. All right. All right. 
Well, thank you to all our Patreons continuing to to help help support us and just everyone listening. And, uh, you know, I think we say it every episode, but I, it's been crazy how, how long it's been going. But, you know, thank you all for, for sticking with it. Or if you're new, welcome. Um, we don't have that pitch, but you can check out the website. You can, uh, you do have some, some links there to follow, but also if you want to learn more or hear more, but just in general, thanks for all the the support and love we get from the the community. Yeah, totally. I've been getting a lot of positive feedback in my personal email and the programming throwdown email, which just shameless plug is programming throwdown at gmail.com, um, about how people like the duo episodes, they like how we're bringing those back, which is great. Um, you know, it is um, you know, a real pleasure to be able to share our experiences with everybody. And uh, um, yeah, and I, you know, this is kind of an aside, but um, so many podcasts uh, perished around like 2019, 2020. I was actually, um, there was a game development podcast that I wanted to get back to. And, uh, you know, they stopped making episodes and I, I just happened to be uh-huh. connected on LinkedIn to the host. So I messaged him on LinkedIn. I said, hey, you know, uh, what happened? And he said, well, um, you know, I think that there's just enough out there or something like that. And, and you know, people want to move on to other things. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's uh, really proud that, you know, the two of us have been able to uh, keep this going for so long. And we have no intention of stopping uh, making good content. So that, that was a that was a bit of a cliffhanger there, like you're leading up to something. But <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, this is actually just clickbait. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> we should make Canceled. the we should make the thumbnail. Yeah, like we're we're leaving. If we were, if we were really optimizing for SEO <laughs> thumbnail, we're leaving our house to go get dinner. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, but yeah, thanks again for all the folks. We have people who have been patrons for years and years. We really appreciate it. Um, all of your support and, uh, we will catch y'all in a couple weeks. Music by Eric Barndoller. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide an attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind. <laughs>